Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Psalm 67. We are making our way. We're doing a series through the summer in selected psalms. There are 150 psalms separated into five different books, and we have selected different ones as we make our way through the summer. The psalms, as you may know, uh, like I said, are a collection of Hebrew wisdom songs, primarily written from an emotional perspective on the human condition as relating to God. The Hebrew wisdom literature both demonstrates and instructs on how to live out covenant faithfulness by living in truly human ways. You'll hear that term many times through the sermon this morning. We are going to read through our text, Psalm 67, seven short verses, and then we will, we will uh, do some work afterwards. So uh, if, you've, if you're there, hopefully you are. If not, it's on the screen. Read with me. Psalm 67 is written to the choir master uh, with stringed instruments. It's a psalm and a song, the title tells us. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him! Exclamation mark. Much like hyperlinks on it in an online article, there were phrases, words, and, and even words joined together that were used to evoke memory for the people of Israel. That's who this song was written for. The people of Israel to sing again and again, and there were words, there was language used in there that would evoke an emotional response as they remembered the faithfulness of God. And for us, we can easily miss some of the context as we read through psalms like this one. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is spend some time just kind of looking at that context before we go verse by verse through this psalm. And so... Just a quick journey on the history of Israel who would be singing this song. People of Israel were given the law of God, and the law of God was given to govern the actions of God's covenant people. It provided instruction on how to relate to God and how to treat one another in truly human ways. What do I mean by truly human? The book of Psalms opens with an invitation to live the truly human way by walking the path of righteousness. Listen to this. Blessed is the man. And that word blessed, we also often misunderstand as well. But it just means full, overflowing is the life of the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates Day and night. These are the opening verses to the Psalms. In these five books, this is the first one. And there's this invitation to reject the way of the world's wisdom and to walk 
the path of righteousness, delight in God's way as he has demonstrated through the law and given through the law, and to think, to ponder, to allow that to be in your mind, but also in your heart as it impacts your outward actions. Living in a truly human way means being in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. There's both this vertical righteousness and this horizontal righteousness. Psalm 67 reveals that God's covenant presence with Israel had a purpose. And that purpose was that God's way may be known so that salvation would be among the nations. God has called his people to resemble and represent him to the world so that salvation may be put on display. And this was true all the way back at the beginning of the scriptures for Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God, made to know God intimately and to accurately resemble and represent him. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter three tells of their failure to do so. Genesis continues this narrative with with the possibility to set things right, this wrong that has happened. Can we correct this? And so we get to this point where we we meet this character, Noah, in Genesis 6 through 9, and God does this restart with the world. And, and, And looming over the text is this question, could Noah, could Noah set right what was wronged? Nope. You don't have to read very long to see that. Well, then you continue through Genesis, and maybe, maybe the patriarchs, maybe Abraham, maybe Isaac, maybe Jacob. No, not them either. None walked in a truly human way. See, their lives were marked by deception, by lies, by pride, envy. The problem remains. And this is the book of Genesis. It gives us account after account of someone who might fix the problem. And we continue through. The law is given. And God God calls a people, a group of slaves. He calls and he delivers them from bondage. This great story of the Exodus makes them into a nation. He covenants with his people. They are the recipients of his steadfast love and faithfulness. He brings them into a land of promise. Yet Israel failed also to live in truly human ways, failing to know God intimately and to resemble God accurately. The judges, maybe they could correct what was was wrong with the people, but no. The book of Judges concludes in Judges 21-25 saying, even after all of these judges, no, everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes. That's a problem. Well, maybe the kings, you know, they didn't have, it it also says that there were no kings over the people at that time. So as you make your way through the Old Testament, you think maybe the kings. And so we have David, this mighty warrior, come and conquer the enemies of God's people. Well, maybe he will set things right. Perfect righteousness, both vertically and horizontally? No. It doesn't take long to read through and see, no, David's flawed. What about Solomon? Solomon? Solomon prays and he asks God for wisdom and he's the wisest man. People are coming from all over the world to hear Solomon's wisdom. No, not him either. The prophets called for the people in correction, yet the problem remains and seemingly without remedy. The reality is the problem is not isolated to Israel, but it is indicative of human nature from Genesis chapter three on. 
Psalm 67 was written during a crescendo in Israel's history. For the most part, the people walked in right relationship, but not perfectly. The blessings of God are present in their lives, and the psalmist desires to remind the people the blessing they experience is for a purpose, so that all peoples would come to fear and praise the Lord. What we see in Psalm 67 is that God blessed his people so they would bless all people, so, God's, so that God's people would be the blessing to the nations. We'll see that play out, not only Old Testament, but also New Testament. All right, so let's, let's dig into this Psalm. Psalm 1, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 67, verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. You probably or may have heard that or read that. Verse 1 is a priestly bl- blessing which comes directly from Numbers chapter 6. But the, the very presence of the word bless would have evoked an earlier account for the Jews as they, as they sang this. An account of Abram, of his calling and his covenant with God. That word bless would be similar to the word inconceivable if you lived through the 80s. It evoked an emotional response to them. They had memories attached to that word. And so it was an original audience hyperlink that, that brings us back to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is God calling Abram. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise. So God, whom Abram didn't know because he was from the region of the world that worships the moon, God shows up, invades Abram's space, and he says, leave everything that's familiar to you and go somewhere completely foreign. By the way, I will be your God. I will bless you. I will fulfill these promises that I give to you. So there was a calling to Abraham, go from the familiar to the foreign in obedience. And there was a promise You will become a great nation. God says, I will bless you. Your name, Abram, will be great so that you will be a blessing, not just to the people around you, but to the entire world, every peoples of the world. Then we see in Genesis chapter 15, two chapters later, God restates his promise to make Abram's descendants into a great nation. God says, it's not going to be just you, Abram. I'm blessing you in order to initiate something that I'm going to do through you in the generations that will come. God says he will establish them within their own land, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, with Abram. God upholds all of the conditions of this covenant. It's not equally distributed. God's not saying, Abram, you do this, I'll do this. That was a normal covenant agreement at that time. No, God says, Abram, I will make this covenant and I will uphold all of these. Every every aspect of this promise I will do. It is attached to my name. God will fulfill all obligations of the covenant. 
Two chapters later, we see Genesis chapter 17. God confirms the covenant and gives, gives Abram a sign of the covenant. And he changes his name. The name that he was going to make great, right? He changes it, changing his identity. Genesis chapter 7, 17, verses 5 through 8. God says, no longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram means exalted father. Some scholars think it's possibly tied to his pagan roots back in, in his hometown. God says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. The king and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This word bless would evoke a time where God called someone who was not following him to leave what was familiar to what was foreign, to establish him, to make God's name great through him and his descendants. The blessing goes back before the nation even existed, when it merely was a promise given to one man. And the people singing this song would see that promise come to fruition as they looked around. As they're singing this song in the great assembly, they're singing this psalm and they're saying, this is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham as we look around each other, around at one another. As I mentioned earlier, the, this first verse uh, derives really from Aaron's priestly blessing in uh, Numbers chapter six. And so we have it would evoke emotions of Abraham's calling and blessing, but it comes directly from Aaron's priestly blessing, where Moses writes this in Numbers 6, 22 through 27. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, this is the priestly line, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, blesses, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There's a purpose in this blessing as well. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. See, he changed Abraham's name. He said he was going to make Abram's name great, and he did through this people. And he said, I will place my name, I will make my name, God says, great through your descendants. And here, this priestly blessing of Aaron was a continual, continual reminder that the people were to exalt the name of God. Not the name of Israel, not the name of Abraham. Jehovah, their God to lift his name high. And the blessing that was theirs, it was nearness, presence. God was with them. This term, may your face shine upon us, is a direct reference to the presence. It means you're close enough to see their face. You see, uh, Psalm 44 says, don't hide your face from me. That's saying, God, don't be distant 
to me, but be near. That's a psalmist in Psalm 44's cry that God would be near to them. And so that's part of this blessing that God's saying, I will place my name upon this people and I will be near to them. God's presence with his people, God's name upon his people, so that it was for a purpose, so that the world may see him as they live out vertical and horizontal righteousness. As they relate to God rightly and relate to one another rightly, the world would see who God is. At least that was what was supposed to happen. God blesses his people. He blessed his people with his presence so that they would bless all people. We see that in verse 2. God's presence is there. And, and you see that term, Selah? That's, that's a, well, relatively unknown Hebrew word that they think is probably associated with some sort of rest or pause, possibly for the musicians. But if the musicians pause, then likely the singing, it was, it was stop for a moment. Reflect upon what we just sang. Man, that'd be good to do sometimes. Stop for a moment. Reflect on what we just read, what we just sang. It's significant. God be gracious to us, bless us, and make his face shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on earth your saving power among the nations. God's blessing given so that God's way may be known and his salvation come to the nations. Now, I don't know that we can make too much of this point, but I think it's worth observing. The Hebrew word here for saving power or salvation, Yeshua, which uh, is also used as a name, Joshua or Jesus, that's his name. You know, you see in Matthew where it says his name will be Jesus because he will save his people. I don't know. Maybe it's there intentionally. Salvation. Jesus. Just, you know, pointing that out. <laughs> Abraham was blessed. Israel was blessed. But they were blessed for a purpose. So that God's salvation, his saving power, may be known among all nations. But how do, how do God's people... Make him known among the nations. Well, it comes in, in the psalmist's cry and declaration what he desires for the nations to do. Praise. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. That is, a, that is a continual refrain. Let them lift their not only voices, more importantly, their lives reflect the glory of God. That's the cry of this psalmist. Let the people live a life of praise. Let it reflect from their words, from their song, but more importantly, let it reflect through their lives that God is great. The praise we give God, that God's people give him, that acknowledging and boasting in the work of salvation that he has done, this includes giving God all glory, all honor, all praise to him and to him alone. Commentators, David Platt, Mason, and Shaddix write on this moment. It says, having identified God's desire to see all peoples praise him, there's a danger of which we in our context 
we see it was true for Israel in their context, we all need to be aware of. We are prone to disconnect God's blessing in our lives from God's purpose for our lives. By disconnecting God's purpose, we may misunderstand the reason God gives his blessing, just like Israel did. We read through the Old Testament and we see a disposition of Israel focusing on what God gave them rather than on who God is and his presence among them. And when they lost focus on God's presence among them and his purpose for that, so that all nations would praise him, when they lost focus on that and they turned insular, they turned and they looked at these blessings, it all started to unravel, and it unraveled quickly. When they started looking at what they got as a result, we see it here, it's it's sound judgment. Um, God's being praised for his sound judgment among the nations. And we're seeing it here as blessing as the, as the, the, the harvest has come in in verse 6. So they started looking at these blessings, the byproduct of the blessing of God's presence, rather than the purpose. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, we're not going to read through it, but summarizing it, it provides examples of these byproducts of God's presence amidst his people. And it largely comes down to this, peace. God says, when you walk in my way, when you live in truly human ways, these are things that happen. And he says, protection from your enemies. Your land will know peace in protection. You'll know peace in provision. You won't be wondering where how you're going to feed your family. And the point is not necessarily the protection or the provision, but the resulting peace we see in Deuteronomy. Yet, as I mentioned, Israel forgot this over the generations, and they began looking to the blessings, the material blessings, rather than the purpose for which they were blessed. Peace with God and with others was the purpose. Instead, they began looking at provision as the purpose and took protection for granted. Thus, they ceased to be a blessing to other nation, to others around them, and they began exploiting others for their own gain. We read through this. The men just wrapped up this past week uh, a, a long study through the Minor Prophets, and it's a continual refrain in the Minor Prophets, like, stop treating people in ways that are not righteous. Stop exploiting people for your own gain. Stop using the things that God has given you to make much of yourself. See, Israel got in this cycle. Eight different times you see this cycle where they they wander from God. God brings correction. They repent, return to God only to wander from him. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Eight different times they repeat this cycle. Why? Because Israel was incapable of true and perfect righteousness, both on a vertical level in their relationship with God and on a horizontal level, a horizontal level on, in their relationships with others. Israel ultimately failed to be the blessing by refusing to live in truly human ways. Forsaking the law of God, they lived in horizontal and vertical unrighteousness. Yet, God was not surprised by this. He was not like, oh my goodness, now what do I do? No, he was not 
In fact, through the Old Testament, God is working for the redemption of his people in his correction, in his discipline, in his drawing, in his nearness. He's working for their redemption. The righteousness of God, as we see through the Old Testament, we see in this psalm, the righteousness of God cannot be merited or earned by the works of the flesh. It is a gift of God. Abram did nothing to be selected. God chose Abram because God desired to choose him. Israel, likewise, did nothing. Now you read through the Old Testament, and you're like, you were the smallest of people groups. <laughs> you, were, you were slaves in Egypt. There was nothing about you that said, yep, I want them on my team. That is the Old Testament narrative. Those who shouldn't have been chosen were chosen, and those who should have been chosen, they couldn't put it all together either. So we have account after account through the Old Testament of showing that though God blessed his people so that they would bless all peoples of the world, they continually failed to do so. They failed continually to live in truly human ways according to God's design. Now, living in truly human ways, like I said, is, means being in right relationship with God and with one another. The law of God, which was a central component to Israel's society, examines human activity, revealing that humans cannot fulfill its obligations. Account after account, as I've said, in the Old Testament demonstrates how we humans easily pick up offense. We project the worst upon others. We often walk in pride and envy. That's just Genesis alone. Continue through the, the rest of the Old Testament. These attitudes and actions, like I said, are not isolated to the Old Testament. I wish they were, but they aren't. Or removed from our society either. Just a couple to poke at. Social media exposes our innate tendency to compare. Likewise, news outlets perpetuates our incredible ability to complain. Humans are corrupt. Let us not pretend we are otherwise, therefore deceiving ourselves into thinking we are somehow okay on our own. This is the good gift of the law, which reveals man's inability to maintain perfect vertical and horizontal righteousness. The problem remains, though. The law cannot fix the problem. It just exposes it. The problem remains. So as much as the devastating reality of our sinfulness is revealed by the law, the gospel, contrary, declares Christ has fulfilled all obligations of the law. God, adding to himself human flesh, walked in perfect vertical and horizontal righteousness, demonstrating through the person and the work of Christ Jesus, Yeshua, what it means to live as truly human. He demonstrated it perfectly for us. Christ offers his righteousness to unworthy sinners like you and me, that we, though stained by sin, may be washed clean by the blood of Christ clothed in his righteousness and given a new identity in him. Those 
who are in Christ are freed to walk the path of righteousness and covenant faithfulness with God. For we have been justified by grace through faith in Christ, and the relationship with God has been completely restored. We have been restored to restore. He's called us also into a mission. Now let's pause for a minute because you might be asking, how do I receive this righteousness? You might be here this morning. I don't want to assume that everyone here understands that this righteousness of Christ is available to you. So you might be asking the question, how do I receive this righteousness, this right relationship with God and with others? How do I walk in this? Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 writes this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Those of us who walk in newness of life, the salvation offered by Christ, we have been blessed beyond all blessing more so than the Old Testament saints that, that had God in a particular place. Now, under the new covenant, God dwells not in a tabernacle or in a temple, but within his people. I remember a conversation in a Bible study one time uh, with a friend of mine who we were, we were studying through a gospel, and he just, he just said, man, if, if I could just be there with the disciples, that would be so amazing to walk and talk with Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree. But like read through those gospel accounts. There's a lot of walking, but there's a lot of one-legged walking because there's foots in their mouth because they just don't get it many times. And they're with Jesus, but they don't get Jesus I said, how much better this side of Pentecost, where God's spirit is not just next to us, it, it, it dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, instructing us, guiding us, correcting us. It is a good time to be alive. There are good things for God to do, for us to do in the world, for God to do through us, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in the world it's a good time. <clears throat> even, even though the problem of sin remains, we look at the world around us and we see the effects of this problem. But today, in this side of redemption history, we know that the human problem has one remedy. And that is Christ. He is the only solution to the problem. Christ, the true Israel, has gathered his covenant people. The church has washed clean from the stain of sin, sanctified by Christ's atoning sacrifice, and commissioned to resemble and represent him. The original commission given to Adam and Eve, who failed. Then to Israel, who also failed was fulfilled by Jesus, and the benefits of his glorious work are given to those who are in Christ. But those benefits also come with responsibility, similar to what we see in Psalm 67. That new heart that, that Christ gives us, Ezekiel talks about this heart of stone, this hardening toward the ways of God, and that this new covenant would come where God would remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, that new heart that comes 
in this new life in Christ, it beats with a mission's pulse. It beats with a desire not only to make much in my own life of God's name, but to see others make much of Christ. Jesus declared that he would leave behind his chosen people, the church, with a purpose. Make disciples, proclaim the gospel, teach and demonstrate what it means to live in Christ as truly human. That means we walk in repentance. It doesn't mean that we are perfect as much as we try to follow Christ's example. There's a little theological term called the already but not yet. It means we are made righteous, but we still live with the presence of sin. The power of sin has been defeated, praise God, at the cross, but the presence of sin remains until he comes again. And so how does God's covenant people, how are we to walk in truly human ways? We are quick to repent, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Friends, this is easier said than done. We humble ourselves. We exalt Christ. We live to make much of his name. Not the name of a church or the name of a person other than Jesus Christ alone. Our talents, our gifts, our monetary things that we somewhat own... (laughs) They're all his. We view them with a different perspective because of this new life that he has given us. They're not ours. Even our children, they're his. God calls us to demonstrate what it means to live in Christ as truly human so all nations, all peoples would see without prejudice. Because God has brought salvation through Christ to all people groups, not only ethnic Israel, all people groups. What Psalm 67 declares to its original audience, the nations will praise and fear the Lord, is the ever-growing reality in our day. We are seeing the nations come and praise the Lord. We are seeing missionaries go to unreached people groups, people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And we have since, since the beginning mission movement in Acts. We have continued to see the gospel spread throughout the world. Praise God. May we pray that the gospel would move throughout our communities, but may we pray even more fervently that the gospel would move in areas where his name is not known. That we might pick up this passion in Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you. Friends, it's easy to grow apathetic especially when we're comfortable. Let us fight against that. Let us fight against the apathy to say, my world exists because of what I'm doing. And let us look beyond ourselves to the mission of the church in gospel proclamation. In Spurgeon's daily reading a couple days ago, he had a zinger. Spurgeon is pretty good at zingers that just kind of hit the mark, stings a little bit. I usually mull over it and go, yeah, he's right. Uh, Spend some time praying. He had a zinger. 
on Thursday. This is what he said. He said, we never know God aright till we know him to be ours. And the more we love him, the more, we, the more do we long to be fully assured that he is ours. The love of God grows a zeal for God. He continues, zeal is also stimulated by the thought of the eternal future. It looks with tearful eyes down to the flames of hell and it cannot slumber. It looks up with anxious gaze to the glories of heaven and it cannot but bestir itself. It feels that time is short compared with the work to be done and therefore it devotes all that it has to the cause of the Lord. And it is ever strengthened by the remembrance of Christ's example. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear him. God blessed his people so that they would bless all people. So if you are in Christ today, let us be that blessing. In our words, in our deeds, with our resources, our time. That is my prayer. My prayer is that we would sing this song and reading these words and say, God, change my perspective, change my heart. Help me to see this world as you see it and to live to make much of your name. May our love for Jesus fuel our zeal to proclaim the gospel. May we see the blessing of God's redemption, the adoption into God's family through Christ and live in the new life he has given us as truly human in Christ's righteousness, vertical and horizontal right relationship. And may we engage in the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, this morning, we come before you. God, we confess. God, too many times we are apathetic to the world around us. Too many times we are focused on our own lives and our own things and our own, our own, our own. God, change us. Put in us a zeal for the glory of your name. Help us to sing this psalm in Psalm 67 with our lives. That God, our desire would be that the nations would be glad because they are praising you. Just as we know joy and peace because of what Christ has done, God, help us to engage and the mission of proclaiming the gospel. Not because we earn anything by doing so, but because you're glorious and we see you as you are. We can't help but proclaim you and what you've done. God, I pray that you would stir in us, in our hearts, a desire to see your name praised. 
God, help us to rightly resemble and represent you to the glory of your great name.